We're looking at John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42, and I'll be reading from the ESV translation. So I'll give you a moment if you want to look that up. So it's John chapter 4, verses from verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you, the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you, say that in Jer- but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming... And is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, 
Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Anyone Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Saviour of the world. Thanks, Dan. Friends, I think we should give a round of applause to Dan. He did really well in going through a big passage for us. Um, the reason why we do that is here at this church is because we value, uh, as many churches do, uh, God's Word. And when we, when we read it or listen to it, it's not just text. It's as though we're hearing the audible voice of God speaking to our hearts and souls. And I hope already, as you've been uh, hearing this, something's stirring in you. Uh, so let's pray. Jesus, we come before you. And we pray and ask that whoever we are, whether if we're people who are far from you or followers of yours, we will see you afresh. Lord, my prayer is that we walk away knowing you more. Our great Savior, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, welcome again. My name is Shabu. I'm one of the pastors here at Canterbury Gardens Community Church. Uh, we're very glad that you made the time to come with us and, and celebrate Jesus. That's what we're doing. This is why we're spending our time in the Gospel of John. Uh, whether if you're someone who's unsure about the Christian faith, maybe it's been a while you've been to a church service, uh, maybe uh, you've been burnt by the church for whatever reasons, we pray that you will already hear, and if you haven't already, through the songs, through our time in communion, that we want to present Jesus to you, and we want you to be confronted by who he is and what he says. Maybe you're someone who is already a follower, and this is part of your church family, this is part of your church home. We pray that you too, and maybe this morning we're reminded again afresh of who Jesus is from the week that you've had. Not only that, to be reminded of why we exist in this world. As John and a few of us have been say- saying to you, we as a church have been spending our time in the Gospel of John, deliberately taking our time through it. And a few weeks ago, uh, we were confronted by the story, a very famous story, of Jesus speaking to a guy called Nicodemus. He was a religious leader and ruler of the time. And this man thought that he could have a relationship with Yahweh, with God, the God of the universe, just based on what he does. His religious practices, uh, his background, his heritage. Jesus confronts him with the truth and, and says, you should know this as the religious leader, but you don't realize that you need to be born again. That's where we get the most, one of the most famous Christian verses in John 3.16. Jesus also says that you need to be born of the Spirit and of water. And last time when we were in, John, in the Gospel of John, we left off again where we met John the Baptist. And this time, John the Baptist, is, uh, his ministry is also there, plus Jesus' ministry is going on, and there's this sense of you know, competition. People are asking him, and his disciples and others are saying, do you know there's others going there? Is this going to be an issue? And John's like, no. Nah. This is exactly why I'm here. I'm, I'm a forerunner. I'm here actually to point you to someone much greater. And to him, he was rejoicing that Jesus is greater than him. 
And the Apostle John, who is recording that story, then writes in verse 36 of chapter 3, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This was the statement that we were left with to consider. Where are you finding your life in? Is it in Jesus or something else? And we were confronted with this news, and this good news, that if you give your life to Jesus, you gain eternal life. But if you do not, the wrath of God remains on you. And as we've been hearing already from the great little video with the kids, remember, what's the purpose of John? That we may believe in his that Yeah. Yeah, beautiful, great. I think uh, the kids might have to do it again. And what? And what would happen? We would have life in his name. Okay? That's the, that's the foundation, what, that, what's, what John's leading towards. And we come to another very, very famous story. If you've grown up in the church, this is probably one of the most famous stories of Jesus' interactions with a woman, the Samaritan woman. And this morning, friends, I just want us to consider a few things. One, I, was, I want us to consider Jesus, the living water. Second, I want us to consider Jesus, the obedient son. And finally, I want us to consider the savior of the world. So in verses 1 to 15, we have this picture that's drawn. So Jesus hears there are people sort of um, wanting to pursue Jesus for the wrong reasons. He's hearing about this. His time has not come and he knows what his purpose is. And that's going to unveil again in this chapter. So Jesus goes, and he moves from where he is. He decides to head somewhere. So he heads to head towards Galilee. So he leaves Judea. Now, I want to show a little map up here. Now, we're going to have a little bit of a history lesson for you. And so those of us who are like, oh, no, please listen. Hopefully it'll be interesting for you. The reason for that is to give you a bit of a background. So here is Jesus. He's, he's about to go to, uh, to Galilee. He's he- heading that way, but he has to go through a particular part called Samaria. So there's a map of when the Gospel of John um, and that time of Jesus' time, this is what it looked like, the map. This is what the different towns and cities are. Now, it makes sense in some sense geographically if you were like Jesus. Well, okay, I've got to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. But here's the thing. If you were a Jewish leader, a rabbi... If you took uh, the sayings and teachings uh, that was there in that time, you would actually avoid Samaria. Because you know why? The Samaritans left there. Those dodgy Samaritans. You would avoid them. Now, the writers would say maybe Jesus was just being practical. He had to go through there. But I'd probably say, based on the passage in front of us, there's a prompting. There's a sense that Jesus has a mission. He has a purpose for heading towards Samaria. And so, just to give you a bit of a background about who we're talking about, the Samaritans, uh, you'll see them throughout the Gospels. The Samaritans were a people group who resided in ancient Israel. And towards the Old Testament period, they also worshipped Yahweh. But they only took the first five books of Moses as the law of God. So anything that comes after that, no. That's not real scripture. Uh, And you see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in our Bible, uh, it talks about this relationship that the Jews have, particularly when those who are from exile come back. 
and the Samaritans and the Jews like butting heads. Now, when I talk about butting heads, it's not like, you know, uh, I disdain for a certain group of people that really hated them. It would boil their blood to consider the Samaritans. And so the Samaritans, they believed in God, but they also believed that as much as the Jews think that the real worship is in Jerusalem and that's where the temple is, actually true worship for the Samaritans was in another place called Mount Gerizim. And to this day, the Samaritans actually do exist here in this world. But see, most uh, Jews totally thought these Samaritans were ignorant. They had no idea. They had no clue. They actually believed that they were outside God's favor because they're not God's people. Not really God's people. So this is the background of the Samaritans. But also the Samaritans, in their book, in their Old Testament, they also believed in a Messiah. They actually believed in a Messiah coming. Uh, the Messiah they would call Tahib, and Tahib was someone who was expected to come based on the line of Moses, like a Moses. And you can see that in Deuteronomy 18, this future promise of a kind of like a prophet like Moses. They called themselves Ben Israel, sons of Israel. They were actually a sizable group. They had four things and key things that they believed in. One, they believed in God. There's only one God. They believed in one prophet, Moses. They believed in the one book. And they believed in the one place. And they actually rejected anything that the Jewish nation believed in, particularly the dynasty of the Israel, sort of Davidic dynasty. They believed that the real leaders or the spiritual leaders were those who were the part of the um, temple worship, the Levites. So this is a bit of the background that's going on as Jesus comes to this area. So the Jews and Samaritans don't interact with each other. They're seen as really unclean. And here is this religious leader deciding to go through Samaria. So Jesus arrives. Uh, He's sitting, he's waiting there, maybe weary from his journey. It's anywhere between 1 to 12 in the afternoon. And a woman arrives. Not just a woman, a Samaritan woman to draw some water on her own. And she arrives, and Jesus does something that really throws her off. He says to her, give me a drink. Now, do you remember how I was saying, Jewish people, Samaritans, don't talk to each other, let alone take anything someone like a Samaritan person has touched? And you know what some of the religious writings said about Samaritan women, for example? up here on the screen. Daughters of the Samaritans are menstruants from the cradle, and therefore any item that they would handle would be unclean to the Jew. It's forbidden to give a woman any greeting. So these are some of the historical stuff that's going on in the background. So if you see something like in the text, and this lady turns around and says, "Uh, hold on, you, a Jew, Asking me, a woman of Samaria, drink. This is why she's taken aback a little bit. Jesus is doing something that's countercultural. Jesus is doing something he shouldn't be doing. And so, this interaction begins. Now, Brett, I'm not sure what's happening. I don't know if that's me or something else.
right, we're good? I think. We'll keep going. Are we, are we still with us? Okay, good. So Jesus' statement of saying, give me some water, the Samaritan woman is taken aback a little bit. Uh, she's you know, saying, what are you doing? Uh, don't you realize that you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, not just a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman? But yet Jesus engages with her. Now Jesus doesn't respond and give her a bit of a, a theological argument. What we're now seeing is the heart of our Savior. He responds in one of the most beautiful ways. I don't know if you heard it and saw it. He says, only if you knew it is this gift in front of you. If only you knew who's asking you. And not only that, what's in front of you is actually living water. Jesus is very gracious with her. He doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't say, you know, I'm not going to interact with you. He wants to get to what he's there for, for a purpose. He's there to offer her a gift, a life-changing gift. He's there, in a sense, ultimately to offer himself, and he's there to offer her living water. Now, as you hear the story, this woman, understandably, turns around and goes, Oh, hold on there, Jesus. Wait a minute. Um... Just want to clarify a few things. You don't have anything to get the water out with. I do. And just to want to clarify, I want to make this very clear to you. Do you know where we are? We are at the well of our father, Jacob. Uh, There's a lot of history here. Uh, This is a reminder to us of God's provision for us as a people through our father, Jacob. And not only that, this guy Jacob, just to clarify, this father Jacob, he would have spent quite a significant time digging to get to this well, to this spring that's there. And here you are offering something interesting. You're not going to move a muscle, but you're offering me living water. Living water. Now, is the issue about water? I probably wouldn't say it's about the water. Here's why. See what she says in verse 12. She says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? She's asking a question. It's not really about the water. It's about who Jesus says he thinks he is. Like, are you greater than our father Jacob? And so, I love Jesus. He could easily say, Yep, I am. Do you know how I am? Let me read John chapter 1 to you. He engages in the most gracious way with this woman. But I think what he's really doing is he's going deeper to meet her at where her heart is, to what her real need is. He says, hey, you know this well? You drink water from this, guess what? You'll come back again and you'll be thirsty. And in some sense, what he's saying is what the water has, as much as it's refreshing, it's kind of like dead water. It's not really living water. It's kind of dead because just like your ancestor, this Jacob, and Jesus knows who Jacob is, he's dead. The water that Jesus offers, he describes as living water, not dead water. And what he offers is much more than just a thirst-quenching It's for her soul and her heart. 
And as much as you've come to nourish for water, what Jesus offers will not only nourish you spiritually, it will give you something that will continue. It's like water that will continue to overflow from you. And what Jesus, I think, is saying really, hey, yes, I am greater than Jacob. Because ultimately what I'm here to do is offer you myself. And I'm also offering myself in the sense of his, his living water. He is the living water. But not only that, he offers the promise of what is to come. The language of that water that will be gushing out is being throughout the Bible. And Jesus is talking about a time when the Holy Spirit will empower. That's the language that he's using here. So, understandably, it's hot. This woman goes every day to get water from this well. And she's like, yep, sign me up for your special water fountain deal. Let's do it. She doesn't want to haul water. If there's an option to drink something that will never make her thirst again, she doesn't ever have to come and actually get physical water like this. Man, she's like, yeah, what a great deal. Now, she doesn't quite get it, obviously. She doesn't realize what's on offer is something far greater than material things. It's actually a gift from God that is Jesus himself. She doesn't quite fully understand that yet. She doesn't understand Jesus is saying he is that living water. And not only that, he offers salvation for her. And when the Holy Spirit comes in life, this is the outcome of salvation. So in this moment, Jesus steps back and you can just, I just, you know, you can just imagine. It's a beautiful story. He's like, I'm just going to dig a little bit deeper here. He says, hey, why don't you go get your husband? Go get your husband. And this, I think, is where Jesus says, okay, now I'm going to reveal what's really what your soul's been thirsting after. See, in this very beautiful moment, what we're seeing is Jesus in that. You have Jesus, the flesh, the man. He's weary. He's tired. You're seeing his humanity. And then also you're seeing his deity as God. Because he knows everything about this woman. This, this question of this husband, this statement of, get your husband, leads to her confessing openly to Jesus. And what we see displayed as readers is the realities of the brokenness of her life. That all along she's been spiritually thirsty. And what we're seeing is unveiled in front of us a woman from her life and her relationship has constantly been thirsting after something. Now, whether if she's had five husbands and now she's got a boyfriend there, whether if that means that these husbands were, you know, died or she remarried or divorced, we don't have all those details, but there's a sense that she is constantly going from one relationship to the other. She is thirsty. She's yearning. And rather than actually hiding you know, this is an awkward moment in a conversation. Uh, she actually is open and tells him the truth. And in verse 17, actually, Jesus commends her for it. So in verse 17, it says, The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying. It's saying, Hey, yes, you're right. Because Jesus already knows. It's an opportunity for her to tell the truth. And with all this sort of being revealed... 
what we have is this moment where she's like, oh, you're not just a Jew. Ah, you're a bit more than that. You're a prophet. You're a prophet. Now, remember, the Samaritans didn't believe in the prophets like the Jewish nation did. Uh, They didn't believe in Isaiah and other prophets that came after. They had a particular version of a prophet, and their prophet was one person that I call Moses. And so when she's talking about the prophet, someone would argue that maybe she's saying, hey, you are a prophet or the prophet, depending on how you read that. But ultimately what she's saying, you're not like anybody else. Some would argue that maybe she's saying this prophet is like the Tahib, maybe. Are you the Tahib? Are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? Are you the guy that we've been waiting for? Kind of like on the Moses line? Is that who you are? And it may seem, as soon as she's engaging with that, in verse 20, you get this feeling, right? Uh, She turns around and goes, okay, we're talking about husbands. I don't want to talk about that. Hey, let's get into a theological discussion. Our fathers worshipped on the mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. It's like almost like she may seem like she's like, oh, look over there, cat. She's trying to distract the conversation, maybe. But I just wonder, here's this woman was confronted by a prophet. Maybe there's a lot of things going on in her head and heart. And so what she's really saying is, I wonder, she's saying, hey, there's a point of difference between the Jews and the Samaritans. And just to clarify, you guys think Jerusalem is where worship is. We think it's here. There's a point of difference. And Jesus, rather than getting into a theological debate about, yes, this is what it is, and this is how God set it up, and he could have done all of that, he focuses and drives closer into our heart. He wants to reveal what her real deep need is. See, in summary, what Jesus' interaction with that woman as he talks about uh, the Jews, as he talks about Jerusalem, as he talks about where the Samaritans worship, where the Jews worship, in summary, he's saying to them, hey, your concept of worship is wrong. So are the Jews' concept of worship. Because it's all focused on tradition. It's focused on a geographical place. It's based on your heritage. That's what it's focused on. And in verse 22, Jesus said something interesting. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. At this moment, you've got to remember that how the Samaritans, they don't have all the scripture like the Jewish nation had. They had like just a portion And what Jesus is not trying to say, hey, we Jews are better than you because salvation comes from us. What he's saying, it hasn't been revealed to you. You don't see the full picture. You don't know the verses like in Isaiah that say, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy, eat, come buy wine, milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your labor for what that is not satisfied? Listen, diligently. To me, eat what is good, delight yourself in rich food, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast sure love for David. She doesn't know those passages. She doesn't know passages like in Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. 
I'll remove you from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees to be careful to keep my laws. She doesn't have the full picture. And what Jesus is saying, hey, I want to make this very clear to you. True worship is not based in a geographical location or historical background. What true worship is about is in the Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. That's what true worship is. And there's a reason for that. Because God himself is Spirit. What he's trying to get to here is say, hey, listen, God is not stuck in Jerusalem. God is not stuck in Gerasim where you guys think he's meant to be. And how's that beautifully displayed in the passage for us? Where is God right now? In front of her. Jesus, the God-man, standing in front of this woman. And what God desires, the Father desires, is worship in spirit and truth. It's like saying Jesus' offering, God's offering is living water through Christ. And when that happens, when he comes into your life, he now enables you to be not just people or worshippers, but children worshipping the Father. And your worship now no longer is based on some geographical place. You can worship him wherever you are. There's no sort of division, either of geography or racial. None of those divides you. It's a wonderful picture of God showing his amazing grace. Now you're starting to see the life of this woman starting to crumble. The walls are starting to break down. And she turns around and says to him this. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Friends, there are some passages in Scripture that I think we kind of just read over. And this moment, what we're seeing is a beautiful picture of God's grace. Jesus doesn't fully reveal himself to Nicodemus, a religious leader who should have known better. Jesus doesn't reveal himself to, uh, in a sense, to the people that are getting baptized to be his disciples. Who does he reveal himself to in this statement? A woman in her day and time would have been seen as a second-class citizen, unclean. A woman who in her history, I'm guessing in her world, probably not looked uh, too, you know, seen as a great uh, model to follow. See, friends, this is a beautiful picture of God's grace. God's gift is for anyone who's thirsty, no matter what background they're in. And that might even mean that God's gift is even available. His living water through his son is available even to people that we assume would never change. Because isn't that the story of yours and mine? All of us here, we're drinking out of things in our lives, whether if it's our morality or totally running away, thinking that would give us living water. And Jesus in his mercy called you, changed you, offered you himself the living water. 
Here's a beautiful picture of Jesus revealing. Uh, ultimately, the real heart issue is this. Whether if you're a religious leader who thinks that your religious rites will make you somehow holy with a holy God, or whether if you think that just your heritage or your background, like this woman was thinking, you know, our father Jacob, the language that she uses, all those things mean nothing because at the heart of it, your soul is thirsty. It yearns for something. And you know, it's a wonderful reminder whether if you are someone who follows Jesus or doesn't follow Jesus, the question is, what are we thirsting after? Who are we thirsting after? Is it the living water, Jesus Christ? Or are we banking our salvation, our thirst quenching based on our tradition, our heritage, our knowledge? What is it? Up here on the screen, there's a guy called uh, Terry Virgo. Uh, he's a pastor and leader. He says, Don't assess Christian growth on the basis of how much information has been accumulated or even morality produced, but on an ever-increasing enjoyment of fellowship with Christ. It's a quote to remind us that it is a relational thing. That's how we draw living water. That's how we can see that this Christ, our Savior, is our living water who offers something far greater than the things of this world. Friends, if you are someone who's seeking, maybe you're skeptical about who Jesus is, let me ask you a question in this way. What are you drinking from at the moment? What are those things that you're running to continuously to somehow satisfy your heart and soul. Aren't you still thirsty? Your soul is thirsting for something greater. And you know, I just want to clarify this with you, particularly those of us who have sort of struggled with us Christians and you think that us Christians have figured it out. You know, our Christians, you know, when you come to church, you see uh, people dressed nicely and getting a new haircut and, and standing up the front and all this stuff and think, they must have it together. I've got a secret for you. Us Christians still run after things that is not Jesus. You know, very simply put, practically put, this is nothing but there's a new iPhone. My iPhone's not good enough. I need the new one. If you're a male, the Aldi catalog comes along. I need a fire pit. Really? These are silly illustrations to hopefully see that we all thirst after something. And friends, if you do not know Jesus, you are thirsting after many things. We all have. But here's the thing. Your yearning will not be found in the temporal things, but in the eternal one, Jesus Christ, the living water. So we would invite you to pursue him, explore him, maybe even confess today that Christ is who he is. Turn away from a rebellion and come under his loving authority and receive his grace. And when you do, his Holy Spirit will fill your heart and soul. And he wants to flood you with his love and grace. So this woman uh, encounters Jesus and then what happens? Uh, she becomes, in a sense, part of his ministry team. She becomes the first evangelist to head out and tell her townspeople. Now what she explains to them is, hey, this guy knows everything about me and has told me about my life. 
Now, there's a few things going on now. There's going to be two people shown for us in the passage. The disciples return. They've gone to get some food. They come back and they see something like, Oh, my word. Here is our rabbi speaking to a woman. Not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman. John, I'm not going to say anything. Peter, no, not me, man. It's in the Greek, you can see that. They're more focused on the temporal things. They're far more focused on Jesus' need for food and asks him, Rabbi, are you hungry? And Jesus goes into this wonderful opportunity to teach them a lesson. And he says in verse 34, he explains to them, Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. See, in the moment, the disciples are focused on temporal things. They think Jesus is hungry. And obviously, understandably, they're like, okay, who gave him food? Who was it? Was it you? Was it the woman? Who did it? Jesus says, hey guys, I'm actually not after the things of this world. You know why? There's something I'm eating and that's far more better for me. It's far more nourishing is that I desire to be obedient perfectly to the Father's will. And then he goes on to this beautiful story and says, hey, listen, you don't need to wait for the harvest season. He's using this language that's so familiar to them. And he explains to them and says, hey, the harvest is here. Look, the Samaritans, God's kingdom is advancing. God is drawing people to him. And the words that Jesus used about saying that, hey, listen, I I don't need this physical food. I have a far better food is echoing words that they might have known. In places like Deuteronomy that says, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from from the mouth of the Lord. To Jesus, the only motivation in his life is to do the Father's will. And that's what he's doing in this moment. And he's saying, hey, someone has already sown. And then some may argue, what does he mean? Is it Jesus? Yeah, I think Jesus has already sown. Jesus has done the work and they're reaping the harvest. And he's saying to them, it's your privilege to be part of this. And I think, our Christian friends, for those of us who know Jesus, who've been following Jesus, I think sometimes what happens as we are caught up in the distractions of everyday life, we assume a few things about people. We forget that God is actually already at work, wherever you are, in your neighborhood, with your grandkids, in your workplace at uni, God is at work. But see, when our focus moves away from internal things and focuses on temporal things, ultimately what we're really more focused on is do our own will rather than our Savior's will. So when Jesus invades our heart, it's it's this moment where we realize we're under his loving lordship, which means he's the one who determines our will now, not us. He's the one who leads us. He's the one who wants us to join in the harvest of the souls of people. People that he's already working in. People that he's already moving towards him. Whether it's people at your house, whether it's people at school, maybe it's at uni, wherever God has placed you. This Jesus displays to you and I as the perfect obedient son. And so, as the story goes, the disciples are confronted They're confronted by this truth that Christ is at work. All he cares about is to do the Father's will. 
And what is the Father's will is to draw the lost to himself, to draw the lost to his son. And then not only that, the Samaritans are confronted with this powerful truth that Jesus is not just the Messiah, not just the Tahib. Who is he? Look with me in verse 42. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Man, this is man-blowing stuff being said by these Samaritans, people who were excluded from God's plan from the Jewish thinking. But God's plan was to save everyone. It's a powerful statement. Here in this statement, Jesus is showing that not only is he the living water, not only does he offer salvation to anyone who turns to him, he then empowers them with the Holy Spirit to empower like springs of living water, but he's also the obedient son who was far more concerned about doing the Father's will. And this Jesus would save the world. The Jewish leaders and the Jewish people are looking for a Davidic king, a physical king who would come and kick out the Romans. The Samaritans also are looking for a king, a prophet kind of person, who too will be like a Messiah kind of figure. But they both don't realize for Jesus to be the king of the world, the savior of the world, to save the world, Jesus had to die. In the Gospel of John, later on, Jesus would actually be thirsty again. In John 19, Jesus says this, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished and said, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This living water was willing to become thirsty on your behalf and mine. This living water, rather than drinking refreshing water, was willing to take the bitter cup and the wrath of the Father for your sake and my sake. This living water who promises the Spirit of God when you give your life to Him was willing to give up His Spirit. This is how the living water saves the world, by dying on a cross for you and for me. This is our Savior. So friends, this means that if you follow Jesus, your life is actually not your own. Your will and my will now comes under his loving lordship. Which means he has put you wherever he has put you to be his disciple, follower of his. So Christian friends, if you know Jesus, is there anyone right now that God has placed in front of you that you think you're better than them? Is it because of their racial background? Is it because of their religious background? Is it because of their varieties of beliefs of what sexuality is? What is our response to them, Christian? Because there are people chasing after everything else but the living water. For those of us who don't know Jesus, we would invite you to explore this living water with us. 
we would love for you to know him and so his spirit may come and live in you. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, maybe you feel a bit dry. What's quenching your thirst today? Is it a sin area in your life that you need to confess and turn to Jesus again? Maybe it's something that's going on that you need to just admit to the Lord and ask him, Lord, please forgive me. And friends, it's hard to be a follower of Jesus with people who just don't like you. Who, in a sense, push the buttons. When I was reading this passage, I was confronted by one of my neighbors. I use the name all the time called Dave. Dave knows he has to push my buttons. I'll ask him, how are you going? I say, oh, how's church on Sunday? I said, oh, yeah, it was good. Yeah, it was great. It was really encouraging, you know. And he goes, yeah. Did you hear about the sexual abuse? Uh, I said, yeah, I did. Yep. You Christians are terrible. I think my kids are calling me. i just got to go inside. My flesh wants to defend. My flesh wants to fight. Dave doesn't realize that the life that he's leading right now, the gambling addict that he is, the various things that he runs to, he's thirsty. And Christ has put me in that neighborhood to be his salt and light. Who is it that Jesus is calling you to represent him as the living water? And friends, when we share Jesus, finally, don't forget to talk about Jesus. I know it's an obvious thing. Often when we are representing Christ, we may get caught up in our apologetical stuff of defending and facts and figures and all those things. Great, wonderful, go for it. But don't forget to represent the living water because that's where they will find salvation. Not in my perfect display of the gospel message. The gospel is Jesus. It's in him you find life. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for who you are. You are our great living water. You are the saviour of the world. For those of us who don't know you, continue to stir us to follow you and discover who you are and drink what you offer. For those of us who know you, Reveal to us where we need to turn and help us to be your ambassadors in this broken world and to be more concerned about your will rather than our own. In Jesus' name, amen.